Okay, everyone, go ahead and make your way back to your seats if you don't mind, and then go ahead and remain standing for the authority of God's Word. Y'all act like we don't do this every, every Sunday. Yep, so yes, we stand for the authority of God's Word. So glad to have you here. Um, just uh, real quickly, y'all may have not been able to say hello, but we've got the mans in the back. Welcome with baby Nathan. And then we also have a lounge in the house with baby Miles. So it's so good. So good to have uh, the new babies of Redstone Church here and gathering with us. So this is the authority of God's word found in Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11. If you could turn in your scriptures, we also give away Luke booklets or you can find it in your worship guide. But wherever you can find Luke chapter 5, let's do that. So we remain standing for the authority of God's word for it says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And, all, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So we all say. Amen, amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So as you know, we are in a series going through the book of Luke. We've called it the Realia if you haven't been here, a realia is just a word, a fancy word that means an object, an everyday object used for a teaching lesson. And what we've seen so far is over and over, Dr. Luke has given us these themes or, or um, everyday objects of food and drink to catch our attention because we oftentimes rotate around these three meals of the day. And so Luke is teaching us. If you look at the title and um, your Bibles, you see that this is the beginning of something new. This is a new stage in Luke's gospel. We've seen his birth narrative. We also have seen the beginning of his public ministry. But now Jesus is not doing something by himself. He's actually inviting somebody to join him. And so it's just uh, called the, the call of the first disciples. But we know that the, the plot is changing. The scene is changing. There's a pivot of some sort. But what we see early on is just the fact that Jesus is using his voice. Now, he is a teacher. He is a preacher. We know that. 
We know that he is following the course of John the baptizer, baptizer who was in the wilderness and was also a preacher. And so what we see is that Jesus is using his words, using his voice in a real way. Um, but we see that it's been effective. What do we see? We see that there are crowds that are starting to join him. And so as the words come out, they are palatable. People like what they're hearing. So much so that the crowds are pressing in on Jesus. There is a big multitude of people. We hear their reaction because they've heard Pharisees, they've heard scribes, they've heard teaching before. But what they're saying of Jesus is, we've never heard anything like this. And so where Jesus is, there tends to be a crowd. So the influence of Jesus is growing as well as the crowd size. We find ourselves in Galilee. Galilee is in the north of Israel, all right? So we're up in the upper section here. If you don't know much about Galilee, this is the rural aspect. This is not the city folk. These are country folk. This is Appalachia. This is blue collar. And so with that, you need to know that we're also on a lake. All right, we have Gennesaret here in our passage, but the colloquialism is just that it's the Sea of Galilee. All right, so one or the other. So we have ourselves in rural uh, Israel. We, we are on a lake, and we are likely next to a town called Capernaum. Why is that? Well, because that is the hometown of Simon, who's also called Peter. So Simon, Peter, those go interchangeably. Preaching is an essential role in Jesus' ministry. It's the essential in every ministry. Why is that? Well, because we know that Romans 10 tells us that how can we have faith but through hearing. How do we hear? But through the word of God. And who usually gives the word of God is through preaching. And so if you are to follow Jesus in any aspect whatsoever, if you're going to follow Jesus in any way, you have to have your ears tuned to the words of Jesus. You have to hear them, and then you have to obey them. Your ears have to actually hear the words of Jesus. And so we have here that Jesus is doing something. He is preaching to the crowds. That's what he does. He's using his words, and he's preaching to the crowds, and they're listening. And they're following because they want to hear more and more of what this preacher has to say to them. But he's not just using his words in our passage just to preach. There's another people group that are equally there who's equally leaning in. It's not just the crowds, but there's also some other people. There are these boat owners, right? These are these guys in the lake, they're in the Sea of Galilee, and what does he do? He then pivots to them specifically, and he makes a request. This is totally different from what he's doing with the crowds. He's simply preaching to them, but he looks to these boat owners, and he says, hey, I need something from you. So as he taught, right, and the crowds began to press in on him, he had a hard time being heard. He continued to lift up his voice, and I want you to know, right, but it couldn't reach to the back of the auditorium. People were like, huh, what'd you say? And there were just, they, there, was, there was some stammering going on. So Jesus looked to the sea. He found a couple of boats. He was like, hey, bud, can I borrow your boat? So he commandeers a boat. He gets on it and he uses it as a pulpit. Jesus is much cooler than all other preachers. So I have a music stand. He gets a boat. That's just, those are the rules, right? We're not going to argue with him. 
So he's there, he's commandeered a boat. He's using the water, the face of the water, the water tension to actually propel as an amplifier. So in the same way that we have microphones, he's actually using the, the natural contours of it. And so you see this progression from the crowds he's preaching, but then he's looking individually and he's making a request. And so that's different. That's actually a little more personal in nature. And so what do we see these boat owners doing? He allows them to take their vessel. And so in the same way that the crowds heard his preaching and leaned in and heard, the same thing you see here with the boat owners is they're not only just leaning in to hear, but now you actually see a viable act of obedience. If you're going to follow Jesus in any way, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus in any way, you don't only hear Jesus' voice hear his words, but now the teaching point is you have to obey him. Allow your boat to be commandeered. Allowing your assets to be used by Jesus. So let me set the stage here. We're in Luke chapter 5. Simon Peter and his friends, they own a small business, a small uh, fishing company. They've been fishing all night long. Here we have in chapter five, we have the morning after a long night's worth of work. And it's probably mid-morning and here they are and they've worked hard and they're tired and they're hungry. It's been a hard day or hard night's worth of work. But there they are, not just hungry and tired and exhausted, but what does the scripture say? They're also disappointed. Why? Because they fished and they fished and they fished all night long. And when they've come to the shore, now thanks to Jesus, thanks bud, now there's a huge crowd, crowd, and they're showing up to the, crowd, uh, to the shores empty-handed. They're disappointed because their toil was in vain. What they went out to do, they came back empty. They fished and they fished and they fished and there's now nothing there. So now we are here in the mid-morning sun with these fishermen washing and mending their nets and trying to to play out how they're going to tell their spouses that it's going to be at least one more day until the paycheck clears. Fishing is essential to the first century. After doing some research, it says that every human right in the Roman colonies or even in Palestine will eat up to 1.4 ounces of fish every single week. So it's an engine for the economy. Um, I don't know um, Casey Hansen. He obviously knows what he's talking about, but he tells us that this sea of Galilee, that it's actually a royal lake. What does that mean? That means that it's run by aristocrats or the ruling elites, meaning it's a pay-to-play situation. Every boat that is on that lake has actually gotten a business license to be on that. And so every time they leave, they pay a fee so that they would be able to go out, catch something, and come back. So what is this? He's not just disappointed. Not only are they tired, but they're so very discouraged because they've wasted their money that night. These were waters that are occupied only by contract laborers. And this is hard work. If you've ever been fishing, right, most of you have only been fishing in a way that is recreational. There's a bobber, there's a lure, there's a pole, there's a 
gear that winds and you kind of sit on a dock and you do this. That is not the case here. This is back-breaking work. This is going out and rowing a boat. This is big, heavy nets that you throw. Right? So the nets itself, if you've ever picked up this mat in the gym, you know what something of dead mass kind of feels like. And over and over, they throw it into the waters. Then these big, thick ropes, they get waterlogged. And then you have to pull these nets back into the boat. And then if you caught anything, then you have to drag all of that back into the boat. And you do it over and over and over again. This is hard hard work. We don't know much about this world because we're landlocked or we only do this, um, uh, we only do this recreationally. But to this day, there are fishermen out there. This is the north end of Freeport in the Bahamas. Every single day, these men, right, these families need these fishermen to bring in a haul. So I'm just saying all this to say this is, there's a lot going on in these simple little passages that if we miss or we gloss over, we'll miss the message that Jesus is trying to tell us. Not only is this hard work, right? But it's oftentimes known as generational. You see in verse 10 that they are the sons of Zebedee, meaning it's not just them fishing, fishing, but possibly this was their father's occupation and their father's father's occupation. These are men who knew the moon cycles and the seasons. They would know the water temperature and they would know the migra- migratory moves of all the teams of fish. These people were experts. And for generation after generation after generation, not only were these waters nutritious, but it kept their family afloat vocationally. So Jesus is using his words here. He's preaching to the crowds, yes. He's commandeering a boat, but he's doing something else. He then, in verse four, he commands Peter to do something. All that to kind of build up. Jesus is commanding him to do something. What you may not see here is um, in clarity, but want to explain it is this is a presumptuous act on Jesus' part. You have Jesus, who is a carpenter. He's not a fisherman by trade. He's moved on from his carpentry skills. He's now an itinerant preacher. And now he dared to command Peter, a fisherman, hey, why don't you try over there? So in modern terms, right, this this presumptuous nature of the, hey, why don't you try those waters? What does a carpenter know anything about fishing? To Peter would say, almost nothing, right? So in modern day terms, in our town right now is a a company called Harmon Ice. There's four generation of ice makers who's uh, right now, um, four generations have lived off of this business. It's as if I walked up to this ice maker, four generations worth, and was like, you know what I think, right? Okay, preacher, tell me what you think. I find out that it's great to freeze water on the sun or something to that effect. To which the ice maker looks to me and go, thanks for your advice, but no thanks. You know nothing about freezing ice, right? And so what does a fisherman do at this moment after hearing the advice of a carpenter turned preacher? Well, Peter does respond, doesn't he? But he responds like any other salty, 
fishermen will respond. It's direct, it's strong. There's an exclamation mark at the end, master. Do you not know? We have tried over and over and over. Are you just throwing salt in the wound? Are you just making fun of us at this point? And there's a sternness to it. And so Peter responds, right? And what I'm saying is like just slight annoyance. And I may be making a lot out of this exclamation mark, but it's there. Master, listen, we've toiled and there's nothing. Listen, I have no problem with you using my boat as a pulpit. No objection whatsoever. But the second you want to turn this boat back into a fishing vessel, that's where I am in charge, and that's where I am the expert. No thanks. You've been in these situations, right? You've been in these situations where you are a fifth grade teacher and you get advice from some auto mechanic, and you're like, you may know something about engines, but what do you know about fifth graders? Or you are a channel weather, 11 weather man or woman, and you're getting, you know, you are giving advice to a heart surgeon, the heart surgeon is going to shrug and be like, thanks, but no thanks. Scuba divers giving golf advice. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. But here's what Peter is saying. Stick to what you know, preacher. You may know a lot about the Bible, but you know nothing about fishing. And so what Peter does next is so very crucial to our text. You see here this conjunction, but. So even though there's a stern master, we've tried that. There's a milder then response, but. And so you go from annoyance to some kind of unconventional obedience. He says, but, Lord. He follows the carpenter slash preacher's fishing advice. And he does throw these newly washed and mended nets back into the noonday waters, which he knows will gather nothing. He simply obeys the command of Jesus, and that's it. If you are going to be a disciple of Jesus, sometimes you listen. But more often than not, he will call you to obedience, even when it seems a little unconventional. And then that beautiful little phrase, but at your word, whatever you say, the crowds have gathered at Jesus' preaching. The boats commandeered at Jesus' request. But now Peter, think about the funnel from crowds to boats to now the single individual in the single moment obeying the word of Jesus. Have you made your relationship with Jesus that simple and that clean and that pure, that at your word? I may disagree with you. I may be frustrated. I may not, it may not make any sense, but at your word. So brothers and sisters, you may struggle with doubts. As humans, we're just known skeptics. That's just what we do. Let me encourage you that these very first disciples, they too had their doubts and they too had skeptics and they they butted heads with Jesus. And yet at, at some moment, their heart softened and they said, obedience, obedience is much more important. This passage is very different from what you see in Matthew chapter four. 
You don't have to turn there, but do make a note in your, in your notes that Matthew 4 is the parallel passage to this. So you have Luke 5 and Matthew 4. Matthew 4 is a little pale in comparison to our story. In Matthew 4, you have Jesus coming up to two sets of brothers like you do here. You have them in, the, in a boat like you do here, in the waters where they've been fishing like we've done here, mending nets like we have here. It's, it's a parallel passage. But Jesus simply walks up to them and says, drop your nets and follow me. And these four individuals, two sets of brothers, simply go, yes, sir. And they follow Jesus. But we don't know why they follow Jesus. We just know that they obey Jesus at his word, but we don't know why. What would propel them to do something like this? These are small business owners, right, who are making a living, feeding their own family and making a living for generations and generations. And they simply, in boldness or maybe just obscurity, just say yes, and they follow Jesus. Well, here in Luke chapter 5, we now know the motivation. We now know that there is some kind of chain of events that have happened that is cascading on to this moment of obedience to say, yes, I will drop everything and follow Jesus. And what is that thing? What is the cause of that? A miracle. The reason these small business owners are willing to drop everything is what they're about to see they've never seen ever before. They are about to see a miracle. The scripture said they are in one, not one, but two boats, about 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, about four and a half feet deep. It's a pretty typical uh, fishing boat, and there's two of them. The scriptures tell us that that Peter does drop his nets for a catch, but the catch is what they would say so large, the hull was so large that it began to break their nets. And then as they would drag it into the boats, the boats began to sink. Not just one boat, but two boats. These boats are meant to float, not sink, right? I try to do some research on displacement theory. You don't want to hear it. It's over my head. So I'm not going to give it to you. But it's really, really impressive to be able to take simple mass and sink a boat. It's almost impossible. These boats are made to get up to a ton of mass. And here we have not just one, but two boats sinking. This is a catch of a lifetime. You go out west and you kill an elk, you stuff it and you stick it on your wall or something like that. You go to the gulf and you catch a marlin, you stick it on your wall. You make a hole in one, you put a plaque on your wall. A historic moment, you take a picture and you stick it on the wall. Why? Because you will never forget this moment. This is this moment for Peter, who his entire life, his father and his grandfather, and over and over and over, this is the hall, not only of a lifetime, but for the century. Do you know the people that are going to talk about him? Do you know that, oh, there's a crowd now watching this? They will never forget this moment, that not just one, but two boats were sinking full of fish. Whoa! But 2,000 years later, we're not talking about Peter, the fisherman, are we? We're really not even talking about the fish or the haul. We are talking about Jesus. Because this is not about fish, and this is not about fishermen. 
This is about King Jesus, the one who is able to not only look to Simon and say, can I have your boat, drop your nets, but he also can look at teams of fish and say, let's orient you into that net because I'm about to change someone's life today. The miracle of this story is not the fish, the multitude of fish that filled the nets. The miracle of this story is a changed life. That's what Jesus will do for you and me. He will change our lives when we come face to face with him over and over and over again. This is our Jesus. He is the cause. And so how did Peter respond at that moment? Not just at his command, but how did he respond? This posture that we've been talking about for almost a month, this posture of humility, this posture of repentance, he falls on his face and he says, woe is me, I am a sinner. This is what he does. He can't help but respond. He can't help but react to who King Jesus is in this very moment that he is the sovereign one over all things, creation and creatures alike. And he just naturally responds in awe and worship. A couple of weeks ago, um, somebody took a picture that they say is going to define our generation. So you may be in your 60s this morning or 40s, 20s or maybe teens, but so they say that up to this moment, This is the picture that may define us as a culture and us as a generation. This is LeBron James. And on this moment, LeBron James with that basketball is about to go into a small hoop. And when that ball goes through that hoop, that man, uh, LeBron James, will be the, the NBA's leading scorer of all time. That one shot right there. So this is LeBron James. He is literally at the apex of his jump. This ball is about to extend it almost as high as it will ever go. If you look at this, this is not a dunk. This shot is not even contested. LeBron's uh, nickname is King James. Because at this moment, at this jump, at this time, he's the king of the the NBA universe. There will literally nobody that can touch him. But that's not the reason this picture is the picture that will define our generation. This is not about a guy, literally the the height of his career at this moment. The reason this one will define us is because what is happening behind him. Not only is he full of self-glory and will be talked about forever. But almost every single person in the crowd, they all have their phones out and they're all taking a video or pictures. Why? Because they all bought that ticket that night for this one moment. They knew that just by the law of averages, if you scored like 12 or 13 points, they would be able to see this. And they were so lucky to be on this side of the court to be able to catch this on tape. And so the next day, what do you think all of these people will do with their phones? Bro, you gotta see this. And so with all of their phones and all of this data, they will then do this. And everyone, like, you will never believe what I got on my phone. And so it's not about the self-glory of a basketball player. 
right? But also the cascading glory that we will get by being awesome. Because they will have a piece of history on their phone. And wherever house party or whatever, they'll be able to show somebody this. And they'll be like, what? You were there? That's awesome. The apex of self-glory looks like this, both as an athlete and then also as a spectator. But how does Peter respond? The total opposite. He responds when he sees glory, when he sees something spectacular, he can't help but to fall on his face in full humility and repentance. There's something significant that happens in this passage. Everything in this passage is large. The crowds are large. The teams of fish, large. But here, Peter is small. Right before, or in this passage, something else significant happens that shows the smallness of of Peter's heart. He goes in this passage from master to Lord, just like that. He sees Jesus for who he is, master of the universe, you know, master, commander, someone to be respected, sure. But after the miracle and after his obedience, he becomes the Lord in Peter's life. And that's what's going to change you. Respecting Jesus, not so much. You'll salute him, maybe like give him some money. But Lord is totally different. It'll find you face down for the remainder of your life because you will literally have never seen anything like this in your entire life. Job is found face down when he's coming to the glory of God. Isaiah is found face down when he comes into the glory of God. Peter finds himself face down when he's in the glory of God. But what about you? Is Jesus more respectable and good and nice and a good master? Or this morning, are you willing to pivot in the same way that Peter pivoted and said, no, he is Lord. What about you? Because this The spectrum of humility is a must. You must be able to come to this response of humility and repentance to see this. The passage doesn't end with Peter face down, but actually hearing Jesus give us a a new command, or what I'm saying is a new purpose. He simply says, Peter, listen, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's something new that's about to to to, to go on here. You're going to be somebody new. You're going to go from Simon and I'm going to rename you Peter. You're going to go from fishing right out in the sea to be a fisherman of of men. You're going to go from waters to land. You're going to go from nets to language. All of these things are about to change for you. There's going to be a brand new direction for your life. At Redstone Church, we say that the purpose statement for every single person who follows Jesus is called the great commissioned life. That we are people who go. 
We are people who immerse people in Jesus and also into community, and then we are able to teach people to obey the the commands of Jesus. That's just what we do. And the post-Easter church has been about this over and over and over again, is that it is not just a vocation, it's now a calling for us to share the gospel with all those around us, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what we get to do. There's this concept, right, in fishing. It's called catch and release. It's where you catch something, right? You bit it, you take a picture with it, and then you release it back into the waters. Brownie Lyles is a local uh, fly fisherman, and he says, and he says, I don't know much about business, but one thing I do know is that you don't eat your business partners. And so it's like a strict, like, catch and release kind of business because that's just how it is. These fishermen, right, are very different. The reason you catch fish is to eat them, to sell them, but never to release them. Here, our job is not to eat or, right, our commodities, to sell them. What are we trying to do, right, to save them for all eternity? This is the new mission. This is the new purpose. This is the new catch and release. This is what we get to do. And so what we see out of Peter's life is that exact thing. Acts chapter 2 says that he does open his mouth. After seeing and believing the resurrected Jesus in the post-resurrection world, Peter is totally different. He preaches and 3,000 souls come to know Jesus. And that's what's been happening throughout the church over and over and over again. And so in this year of reflection. Uh, we turned 10 years old. We liked, we're calling this kind of going back to the basics. And so I'm going to show you this little grid that you have on your, um, your fill in the blanks. But let me explain it to you. Now you're in the middle, right? So however you want to be depicted there, you're in the middle. And so what we're challenging our people this year is to truly to look outside these walls people who are far from Jesus, people who are far from community, and be willing to step into their lives to invite them to something. So here's the little exercise, is that you're in the middle and you have at least eight boxes around you. And we believe that if you do enough work by thinking about where you literally live, where you literally work, and then where you literally play, in some aspect, you're going to find eight people, eight individuals who have real names. These are not just generic names, but specific names of people who are either far from Jesus or far from community. The question is, what will you do about that information? Jesus tells Peter, you will now be fishers of men. And so, brothers and sisters, the call to discipleship, the call to follow Jesus is to not just listen, but also to obey. When's the last time you were challenged to think about becoming a fisher of people who are around your work, life, or hobbies? Let's pray. So Lord, we pray that God, you are convicting our hearts over and over throughout this, uh, throughout this book. Thank you for Luke. Thank you for his attention to detail. Thank you for him enlightening us and sharing with us, compelling us to love Jesus more than we love this world. This morning, Lord, I pray for those who may be in this room who are far from you. 
who may have a respect for you, but have not moved into letting you be Lord and Savior of their life. We would encourage them this morning that in their heart and in their mind that they would find themselves bowing and saying, Lord, will you please save me this morning? Will you do a miraculous work? And will you save children and middle schoolers and high schoolers and college students and singles and married people and retired people, will you do a supernatural work and bring people to yourself through the gospel of Luke? We also pray for the brothers and sisters in here who have maybe grown complacent in speaking the words of Jesus, actively fishing and seeing that there are people who are far from you, literally where they live and where they work and where they play. I pray that with a simple little diagram that we too will be compelled to look at the world differently, not just by building our social network of relationships, but also to sense your spirit leading us into people's lives who are far from you and far from community. And so Lord, I pray that you do the heavy lifting this morning and it's in your name we pray, amen. So the reality of food and drink, ends like this this morning is that table of remembrance there's two tables in the front it would be two in, in in front or two in the back two in the front and it's a simple meal that's made up of two very simple elements one bread and other wine or juice the night that jesus was betrayed jesus was having a new family meal and from the scriptures we imply that there was no family in the room but instead it was a group of friends who are actually becoming a new type of family. Jesus takes a piece of bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body given for you. And in that moment of breaking and sharing, he says something to us. He says that there is a picture of sustenance and nourishment, actually just the platform of all humanity right here in this loaf of bread. But I am the bread of life. He says, take and eat. But then he takes the chalice of wine, another just very simple symbol that is just universal. This wine, and he just kind of, it was in a chalice, and he says, take and drink. This was what history tells us is the third cup of the evening. And this was the most joyous of the three glasses. This was the celebratory glass. Wine is, when it hits the glass, it sparkles and it shines and it's meant to be joyful and full of celebration. But on this night, he says, as he pours, uh, gives it to his disciples, he says, actually, I'm going to start something new. And what this wine now represents is the shedding of my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Because that's what separates humanity. Not being Jewish, right? Not following the rituals but having your sins forgiven. If you find yourself this morning having your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, we would encourage you to the table where you will find bread and juice. We encourage you to stand and participate as you see fit, but these tables of remembrance are now open.